New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is how to trust your inner knowing. My guest is Emmy Vadness, who is an occupational therapist based in St. Paul, Minnesota, and is author of Intuitive Development, How to Trust Your Inner Knowing for Guidance with Relationships, Health, and Spirituality. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Emmy. It's a real pleasure to have you on New Thinking Aloud after you've interviewed me a couple times on your YouTube channel. That's exactly right. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. It's an honor to be with you. Congratulations on your first book. I'm proud to be able to say that I wrote the foreword, and uh, I'm also proud to be able to say it's one of the finest books on uh, intuition that uh, I've read, and I've read many. Well, you have no idea how much that warms my heart and soul. That just means the world to me. Thank you so much. And I love that you wrote the foreword, and now I get a chance to publicly thank you. Uh, That just is just uh, really rounds it out in a phenomenal way. So thank you so much for that. Well, we're going to talk about how to trust your inner knowing. And I'm sure as an occupational therapist yourself, you deal with people all the time who must feel out of balance, out of sorts, and have a very difficult time trusting themselves. In fact, I know you've had phases of your life uh, that were like that too. Definitely. In fact, uh, not too soon after I got out of occupational therapy school, I, um, it just really wasn't what I thought it would be out in the quote real world, at least in some of the settings I was working in. Um, and I was really naive, young and naive as well. Uh, but I just started experiencing my own stress and anxiety, sort of depression symptoms, um, from sort of feeling a bit disillusioned with that, those early experiences and also to really see how healthcare was in reality after being in school. Even though we had clinical rotations, uh, it was, it was a bit different. And, and I was also doing end of life care, which I, I know is very important, but I was trained primarily to do rehab recovery with people. And I also really was interested in preventative healthcare prevention. And I sadly learned that that's something that you can't really do in mainstream healthcare because it's not reimbursable. And so I just really uh, kind of hit a wall and got burned out very quickly and really didn't know what to do. And so that's what led me to my intuition. In other words, you were going through a crisis. It definitely felt like it. And there were other changes in my life uh, with my home changing, my childhood home was sold. And I wanted to buy it. My mother wouldn't sell it to me. I was in a relationship who I thought I was going to marry somebody and that fell away. And so there were just a lot of changes and it was a bit, it almost felt like too much to cope and with. And, um, I definitely thought about not being here on earth anymore, but I also was listening to what was calling me in my life. And I had heard about something called energy healing from a couple of physical therapists. And I thought, well, how can you affect somebody's health without physically touching them? And I thought that was really unusual. And I know that physical therapists are the most 
physical of uh, healthcare professionals, at least in the rehab, physical medicine and rehab world. And so I went ahead and took a little after work continuing ed class. And I'd always been interested in acupuncture. I was also always fascinated by the meridians in the acupuncture charts. And so I had an apartment and right around the corner was a holistic health center where they were teaching classes in medical Qigong. And basically it's providing energy healing without physically or like acupuncture without physically touching somebody. And so I embarked on that and just began learning a lot about holistic health. And meditation was a big component in that medical Qigong training. In fact, my teacher went to China and studied with uh, medical doctors who were also masters in medical Qigong. And, and I really went into it very skeptically. And I, I was really hard for me to believe that it was true. And this is really where my intuition grew because part of a big part, maybe all of it with energy healing is using your intuition. And so after doing the training, we would have these free clinics where people would just come in and we would practice as part of our training with them. And what struck me was that they would sometimes not tell me all of their health history. And then I would pick up on things in their meridians, which are the energy pathways, which correlate to the organs and traditional Chinese medicine has a beautiful metaphor. It, uh, all of the five elements correlate to emotions and um, just so many aspects in our, in our lives. And I would pick up on things that they hadn't shared with me. And it was very deep and profound and it's definitely subtle energy um, but it was definitely a way to to connect intuitively. And then I also met my intuitive teacher at that same center as well. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is af after going through conventional occupational therapy training, uh, there was a feeling of, of smallness about it. it. It didn't live up to your expectations. But then when you got involved in energy medicine, you developed a sense of yourself as much larger than you had ever been taught previously. That is exactly right, Jeff. And really a whole world opened up to me. In fact, for the last 20 years, I feel like I've had one foot in mainstream healthcare. Well, <laughs> I have more than one foot in these other holistic realm. And uh, I'm incredibly grateful for it because through that process, we also learned how to cultivate our own internal energy. Um, now, I'm still a work in progress. I don't have it all figured out, but it definitely helped, helped me and continues to help me in my life. And it helped me to balance myself and my sense of, you know, uh, how I am in my own body, the whole mind-body-spirit connection. And then through that, working with my intuitive teacher, a big component with her was also cultivating uh, a meditation practice uh, and she was very disciplined, you know, made us be very disciplined in that process. And I'm still incredibly grateful for her with that. Yeah. And occupational therapy is a, is a holistic profession unto itself. And that's why I was originally drawn to it. However, um, again, the scope of practice is very holistic, but I'm really talking about, you know, what's kind of been considered alternative medicine and, uh, it, it's something that when I got into practice, uh, because of insurance companies, reimbursement, the fast paced setting, uh, we were expected to have really 
intense productivity schedules and it, it was just too much. And it's, it's, it's really unfortunate because then it can carry down to the, the person receiving the care as well. How long would you say it took you from the time when you were really at your bottom? I mean, you told me that you, you even had suicidal thoughts till the time when you felt like you really understood yourself and you could trust your inner knowing. Mm, that's a really good question. Of course, of course you would ask such a great question. Yeah. I would say that it, I still felt the anxiety for probably a few more years. And I still have moments of things that, that trigger me with that as well. I'm still on a healing path or, you know, a learning path with all of that. But as far as like really coming out of that dark hole, um, it really didn't take that long because I, I would say maybe a few months to a year because I was able to, you know, tap within. And I was also then surrounded by these amazing people who had this beautiful holistic perspective and it really brought more joy into my life and, and a new sense of passion that I hadn't had before. Well, the reason I asked that question is because I imagine that there are people viewing this video right at this moment and they're thinking to themselves, I wish I could trust myself. Uh, I've made so many mistakes in my life. How can I trust myself? And I think maybe one of the very first uh, steps is, is to say, be patient with yourself. Yeah, be patient with yourself and also be gentle with yourself. I, uh, tend to be hard on myself. I say that I'm a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> I think it's good to strive to do well in life for sure. But I think that uh, a big, big part of my life, I have been uh, maybe too hard on myself. And I and through this process with connecting with my intuition, I really discovered self love and self acceptance. And I think that that's a big piece that um, can be hard for people while connecting with their own inner knowing is that inner critic that can take over. As a matter of fact, uh, it's an issue that parapsychologists have learned to pay attention to. Uh, Dr. Jewel Eisenbud, a psychiatrist uh, from Denver, now deceased, did some wonderful work in parapsychology. But uh, he discovered with many of his psychiatric patients that uh, who had psychic abilities that if they had a guilt complex and they wanted to punish themselves, the, their psychic abilities might function in the service of a guilt complex and, and end up getting them into trouble. That makes a lot of sense. And I think as well, doing this professionally, providing energy healing to people, helping teach people how to connect with their own inner wisdom uh, one needs to be quite centered to be able to do that and to be in that, um, I think you refer to it as a super conscious state, the higher self, to be able to be in that, in that loving state, uh, so you can bypass, uh, some of these thoughts or feelings that might get a person down. But for those, right, who are listening, who don't have any interest in doing this professionally, some people might, um, absolutely, you can cultivate this. And there's even neuroscience research now. The, um, of course, meditation has been around for forever, as long as there's probably been humans. But mindfulness has become very popular over the last few years, as many people know. And there's amazing neuroscience research about how that can actually uh, 
shrink uh, the amygdala, which is connected to fear. And it can also help with focus and attention. And there's even research that it can help develop compassion and not only compassion toward others, but compassion toward ourselves, which is something that I've really been a journey on a journey with in my life. Now, how would you define mindfulness? Well, I mean, I look to the roots of where it comes from. And so John Kabat-Zinn coined the term. And my understanding is that it comes from Buddhist meditation, Vipassana, which means clear seeing. And so what's really interesting about that is that to me, that's really what intuition is. And when we look to the tradition of yoga and the eight limbs of yoga, samadhi, the union with the divine, um, which might sound a bit, you know, lofty, but really you can, you can connect with this. And so they really are all synonymous from my perspective. You know, I've heard this definition of uh, mindfulness associated with Vipassana meditation, and I've actually done many interviews in the past with Shinzen Young, a teacher of Vipassana meditation, but I've heard the term mindfulness also used in a different way, at least to me it seems different, which is more like body awareness, like be aware of your breathing and your heartbeat and your muscles and so on. I believe that you're exactly right for my current understanding. And thank you for saying that because I was just thinking that when you were about to say that as well, that uh, it's being able to pay attention from a place of non-judgment, from a place of unconditional acceptance, unconditional love, perhaps. Now, again, I worked with a client once where I was working, talking with her about self-love and she said, love myself. I don't even like myself. So I just, I want to also honor that there are certainly people who maybe feel like they can't even don't like themselves or really are having a hard time forgiving themselves about something. And you're right. And that's the beauty of mindfulness is that it's something that you can practice while in a meditation and whatever posture, seated, lying down, resting comfortably. And it's also something you can practice and engage in going about your daily activities, which is something I teach occupational therapists when I teach them continuing education. And so, right, I think it's a, it's, I think it's one of the most beautiful practices we can engage in in our lives is being able to observe, right? Because we have so many thoughts, so many emotions in a given day. Um, somebody can say something and, and it can really upset us. And uh, I did a training with a gentleman named John Ruskin. He wrote a book called Emotional Clearing. Over 10 years ago, I, I took that training. And uh, really, it also helped me to understand how we can project our own thoughts and beliefs onto others. And so I really developed a practice that if somebody triggers me in a particular way, or if I have a particular reaction or a feeling towards somebody, that I really take that through a mindfulness um John Ruskin, his lineage is through Kriya Yoga. Again, I think it's all very similar. And I allow myself to feel the feelings while simultaneously observing it with the witness consciousness and allowing those feelings to be there and just sit with them with love and compassion and non-judgment. And what's really fascinating is if you do that and you really sit with it long enough, and sometimes it can take a few minutes and sometimes it might take an hour, or it could take several times doing this depending on how intense the feeling is. Or the thoughts or beliefs, but it really does transform over time. And then new cognitive awarenesses can come from that, from the shift of the emotions. And you talk about body awareness. Um, you can also use that process as well for any body sensations or physical sensations as well, which often 
have a correlation to thoughts and emotions that we might not be aware of. For example, uh, so many people have uh, pain in their lives. It's the number one reason that people enter into the healthcare system. And a lot of times it's poorly treated. Doc- according to Dr. Herb Benson, who coined the term the relaxation response, 60 to 90% of doctor's visits are in the mind-body stress-related realm that are poorly treated by drugs and surgery. And so, you know, these are techniques that we can bring into our lives that that can really help us without having to always reach for a pill or something like that, which sometimes those things are needed. But I can well imagine if if I'm in pain, it's very hard to uh, feel that I can trust myself because I, I'm hurting. And, and also, if I'm in pain, I'm likely to get irritable with other people, which is going to create more uh, emotional issues. So, pain is a, is a very good thing. I imagine a high percentage of the population are, are dealing with pain. I, certainly, we sell an awful lot of uh, painkillers. Absolutely. And everybody's different. I mean, I I'm always careful that while, yes, there are particular techniques that I gravitate toward in my life, I know that not one is a panacea for everybody and nothing is going to work 100% of the time for 100% of the people. That being said, there can be many different reasons for a person to be in physical or emotional pain. Um, I had a really amazing experience. I worked at what's now the Penny George Institute for Health and Healing from 2003 to 2005 at Abbott Northwestern Hospital. It was started by Penny George and her husband, Bill George, who he was the former CEO of Medtronic, and he seeded money. I think it was about a million dollars at the time that paid for our salaries because she had had breast cancer, and there was a very small complementary therapies department at the time, and she credited those services to helping her heal, uh, our big part of her healing at any rate. And so I was hired to provide massage therapy, energy healing, guided imagery, guided meditation, reflexology in the inpatient aspect of the hospital and then the grew to outpatient as well. And when I first started, we would get orders to go and work with people. And it wasn't until a few months in that I realized that our supervisor was in a very smart way having us work with some of the most challenging patients in the hospital who were not responding to pain and anxiety medication. So here they are in a major hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota, serving a five-state area where a lot of people are flown in uh, for, well, many things, but the heart hospital is the main one there. And they were on the max dose. They had been seen by the pain doctor, and they weren't responding. So they were basically truly in a crisis situation. And what we found was that I believe it was about 80% of the time we were able to get their pain and anxiety levels down by about 50%. And we didn't know that was going to happen. I don't think the doctors knew. The doctors didn't know it was going to happen because they would come up to us afterward and say, what did you do with Mrs. Jones? (laughs) You know, we have more people for you to see. And so what happened was is that people would use less medication. And obviously, you know, stress can also be a vicious cycle because then it it can be get more stress and then a person's immune system can be compromised even more. And so a research study followed from that. So I was one of the practitioners who helped collect that data. And that's really what gave me the most confidence in these approaches. And during that time, uh, our team was sent to a training for guided imagery 
And that was really pivotal because I was able to, and by the way, when we were working with the people in the hospital, we often didn't have more than 15 or 20 minutes with them. It wasn't like we were spending two hours, you know, trying to wrestle them to the ground to, you know, help them relax with their pain. It was very limited amount of time. And so it was just a beautiful experience to see that happen. And I'm really grateful that we were able to help so many people and that program is still going today. That sounds wonderful. And I gather what you're saying is you didn't use uh, medicines, of course, painkillers. You were working uh, fundamentally with psychological techniques, I presume. We were doing mind-body, I guess you could say mind-body-spirit as well. Uh, us practitioners, at the time when I was first there, there was about, I think, eight of us. And some of us were trained in massage therapy, so it could be a back massage, it could be a hand massage, or I did a lot of foot massage and foot reflexology. Energy healing, if somebody just had surgery and they didn't want to be touched or couldn't be touched, I was astonished how... Somebody maybe had just had a spine fusion and they were 10 out of 10 pain and I was able to get them down to maybe a five or a six in like under 15 minutes and, and craniosacral therapy. So there was a variety of different techniques that were used. Um, but basically the, the main component that I see with those is that they were able to help a person get into a different state of consciousness, which is why you mentioned the, the psychological piece. And what I've noticed over the years, um, I'm nationally certified in therapeutic massage and body work, and I'm an American board certified reflexologist. And so I've given probably over 15 to 20,000 uh, body work sessions to people. And it, it definitely by loosening up the tension in the body, you can also then loosen up the tension in the mind. And so in a majority of cases, you can help with that pain. Um, and, you know, sometimes people have pain because they sit too much or, um, they really do have something that needs surgery. Um, although then my mind goes to Dr. Wayne Jonas, who was the first director of the Office of Alternative Medicine at the National Institutes of Health. And he wrote the book, How Healing Works. And he says that 80% of your health and wellness is up to you. And that echoes work by probably many people, but also uh, Herbert Benson, and so, you know, there's, there's many things that can help people, but, uh, this has really given me a lot of confidence with, with how I'm helping people now. And then I recognize that, you know, somebody, if they're not stretching or exercising or eating well or sleeping well, all those components factor in as well. Now you use the term energy healing. I wonder if you could define that a little more. How it was taught to me is that Qigong means energy cultivation or energy movement. So essentially, if we think about when we go back to your rainbow yin yang, um, that one could say that the universe and everything is in constant motion, but sometimes things might not be flowing well. And so how I've come to understand energy is that I think of it in terms of vibration. And I also think of it in my mind as sort of like a river. Because when I think about the meridians of acupuncture, that's like a like a flow, the the energy would flow through it. And so because so again, going back to like a continuum of right, we have thoughts, and then we have what seems to be physical. And so that's on a continuum of energy, I think. <laughs> um, meaning that the the wave or the frequency of it, it's possible that something that's more physical might have a little bit have a slower vibration or be more dense. 
And so I've noticed that providing energy healing for myself and working with clients over the years, that when there are emotions or thoughts that are not flowing well, that I can actually see that in them or feel that. So it could be like you talk about pain, it could be a heaviness. Um, it could be a sense of a block for somebody. Well, I get the impression that you're, you're working with a client or a patient and, and you're getting intuitive impressions about, uh, what they need somehow. And, and, but then what do you do? Let's suppose you notice that there's a blockage. And so I was trained to sense with my hands and my own body as an instrument. You can feel like heat or cold. Um, something that's worked for me over the years is that I hear messages. So I'll hear words, hear phrases. So I'm listening to what the person, their, their soul, their spirit is saying to me. And then, uh, also I see images and I've gotten to the point where, again, I don't know how accurate I am, although I, I've gotten pretty good, very good feedback from my clients is that it's like x-ray vision where I can close my eyes and it's, and then I can actually see better where the energy is, is flowing or constricted. So by that, I mean that I tend to see where the light is in the individual and where that's flowing and where it's not flowing as much. There's a fundamental uh, meditation in Qigong called the small universe. Then you break it down. It's the heaven and earth and then the microcosmic orbit. And essentially that's bringing light in from the sky or heavens above through the top of the head, up through the palms of the hands, into the arms, and down out the first chakra and out the soles of the feet, down into the earth, and then it can come back up around for the aura. And then you go in the opposite direction for the earth energy. And so when I'm working with an individual, I'm I'm assessing how well is that flowing for them. And that's the yin and the yang right there. How well is that in harmony? Are they are they very grounded to earth? Are they too grounded? Or how connected? And then this correlates back to the chakras and uh, their meanings as well. So I was trained to move that energy. And so I act as a conduit of that exact same energy, the heaven and the earth that flows through me. And then I'm able to, I guess you could say, um, sort of like maybe a laser or like help push it out to the individual to help help that move through them. I've also learned over the years, in my experience, every practitioner is different, that a person's consciousness, that they're going to hold the new changes we made in their energy patterns if their consciousness is involved. And so for years, I would think that I was supposed to fix people and do that for them. And there are some practitioners who claim that they can do that. And then a person is fixed or, and I definitely, it definitely does, um, sort of supercharge them or help with their energy, but for, for it to have lasting benefit for them to it to carry over for the next weeks and so forth, that them being aware of the block and if there's anything cognitively or emotionally happening for them, that that's something that needs to be worked out as well. But sometimes it can shift without that happening, but um, that's what I've noticed. Well, I get the impression that this, uh, these abilities that you have, have learned uh, took place over many years of training. Yeah, the initial medical Qigong training was almost two years. And then I also trained with an intuitive at the time. But, you know, it's one of those things, Jeff, where, again, going back to what you were getting at early on that it's something that a person can cultivate in weeks and months and you get better at it. It's like anything. 
And I, and that's what I've noticed for myself over the years is I really look at it as that I was able to provide a very nice energy healing session for somebody within a couple months of training. It got way better after a year, <laughs> better after a couple years. And now I'm, um, over 20 years in. And I would like to think that the quality has improved over that time. <laughs> well, the interesting thing to me is when you describe the ways in which you can move energy around it sort of reminded me of Wonder Woman or, or, or something. It seems, it seems very magical. And yet uh, I bet that you would tell me that this is a natural ability accessible to everybody. Absolutely. It is. I mean, when I teach my energy healing classes, because that's something that I felt drawn to do years ago, is that I liken it to, you know, how up do you feel in a given day? How down do you feel? I mean, we're all we're all connected to energy. It's just that we may not be aware of it. And when you talk about the body, um, some people are not feeling themselves in, in their bodies. Some people might be paying attention a lot to their bodies. But it's important to recognize when people are having a hard time or having pain and suffering. And I don't want to just sound like you just coat it over and everything is fine, but it is sort of similar to, so for example, when I wake up, I would say every day now, I say it's going to be a good day before I get out of bed. Now there were years that I didn't do that. <laughs> and, and I've noticed that the days are really good. And so it's really, I guess you could also equate that to as a mindset. But that really is what we're talking about. It's it's the ener the set of the energy, the energy patterns that are happening. And that's all correlated to thoughts and emotions. And of course, there's DNA. And I get that, you know, we're we're born with a certain amount of DNA of um, as well. And that everybody has different beliefs around, you know, how much control they have over that and so forth. But I think that um, but there's a lot that people can do. And I think that's why these, you know, Qigong, Tai Chi is a form of Qigong, yoga have endured for millennia. Back at the time in your life when you were feeling very depressed, as you tell me, you had suicidal thoughts. Uh, you had just graduated from occupational therapy school. I'm guessing that for you at that time in your life, and probably like for most people in conventional occupations today, they're not in a supportive environment that recognizes all of the subtle energies and subtle levels of intuitive consciousness that are now so central to your life. That's exactly right, Jeff. And that's why I've made it a mission of mine for many years now to teach continuing education to healthcare professionals to bring these approaches into mainstream healthcare, whether they're working in a clinic or a hospital or um, private practice. And I mean, one could argue that this was my life path. I, me I was meant to <laughs> sort of crash and burn and find that light within. You know, go back ever deeper in myself and find that and, and bring that forward. Because it seems to me many people are going to be viewing this video right now based on the title, which is How to Trust Your Inner Knowing, which is also part of the subtitle of your book. And I can well imagine that for many people, they're not in an environment which is constantly encouraging and, and supporting them. And what you had to do is reach out and, and create for yourself uh, all of those social support systems. I think it's pretty clear that our uh, 
for better or worse, capitalistic society primarily is very fast paced. It's very concerned with the bottom line. It's, you know, product productivity. There isn't a lot of space to have a opportunity to feel like you can breathe well through the day. <laughs> um, and I think that that's really the challenge. That was the challenge for me. And I think it's incredibly unhealthy for people. In fact, uh, I've seen different stats, but a consistent one is that 50% of healthcare practitioners meet criteria for burnout. And now whether a person is working in an accounting office or is a dog groomer, I mean, these things can happen in any environment. And you're exactly right. It's being able to get back to ourselves, getting back to nature, getting, you know, I have an organic garden. I work from my home now, uh, have for many years because I can create how I believe I'm meant to work. And I wasn't able to find a job exactly that would employ me um, with my unique set of skills and gifts. <laughs> I bet when you see occupational therapy clients, and I gather you still are doing that, uh, that many of these people feel lost in, in the same way that you once felt lost. I did work for a while in mainstream healthcare and brought in some of these techniques. And I just found that, again, I wanted to be on that preventative side of healthcare. And so I started my own practice and it took me about 10 years or so before I realized how to bring these, what's formerly known as alternative medicine, because now so many of them have so much efficacy based research, just in just tons of research has come out even in the last five to 10 years that now it's really known as integrative health. And so. Uh, in fact, I really didn't have, maybe one professor gave me a little, sh you know, shown a little bit of light on how I could bring this into occupational therapy, but I was one of the first OTs to start bringing this into mainstream healthcare. And so you're right. I, so now I'm able to provide it under that scope of practice. Occasionally I'll work with clients, not under my OT license. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. I, I tend to attract people who've gone through similar experiences as I have. Um, and I think that, I mean, I don't know what the stats are now, but 50, 75% of people are feeling that they're dealing with so much stress and anxiety, they're having a difficult time coping. I mean, that's just, and then now with COVID on top of that, that was even before COVID. That was from a 2010, I believe, Stress in America survey. Um, and so... Yeah, and I'm grateful that I can help them because that's really, I mean, what a different world we'd live in if more people were listening to their inner knowing and their intuition. And a big component of that is slowing down. Um, sometimes intuition can happen quickly. It can be like a lightning bolt for sure. But uh, being able to connect with ourselves, and I think that's, I would say that that's maybe even why people are dealing with so much stress and anxiety and depression is because they're not connected to themselves and they need to be. I know in my case, I went through a crisis. I don't think it was quite as severe, perhaps, as the one you went through, but I was agonizing for months. I was in the School of Criminology in, in graduate school. I actually have a master's degree in criminology. I was doing psychotherapy with murderers and rapists at San Quentin Prison, and uh, it was actually getting me down. And, and I realized that uh, I loved to study human deviance, but it should be the positive kind of deviance, not the negative kind. And it 
it took me a long time to figure out how to create a life for myself in, in which I could immerse myself in all the things I love, intuition, mysticism, creativity, psychic functioning, and uh, energy, uh, as you're describing, and yoga, and uh, all of these things are so good and so healthy. Uh, so I've had the benefit, like you, of many, many years of being totally immersed in in this. And I think for people who are viewing this video right now, there are probably some people who are thinking to themselves, I want to do that too. Yeah. Join us. Do it. Try it. You know, see what you're called to explore. Maybe it's meditation. Maybe it's taking a yoga class. Maybe it's finding somebody who's an intuitive teacher. Um, give me, a, you know, get in touch with me. I'll be happy to assist you. And you, you're, you're right, Jeff. In fact, um, I don't know if you know this, but I double majored in psychology. So when I graduated as an OT in 1996, it wasn't yet a master's degree, although they practiced the master's program on us. We didn't know till the end. But because I only need, there were so many psych courses for the OT program, I did, I think it was six more classes and I was able to get a double major in psychology. And I, and I thought, well, maybe if I don't like OT, I'll become a psychologist someday, which, which we'll see. But I use a lot of that. Obviously, it's a lot of psychology and how I'm working with people. And that's exactly right. And when I was in, in my psychology program, it was all pathologically based and, uh, very much about putting people into boxes and finding what's wrong with them and, and, I think that that can serve a purpose to a degree, but can also be quite detrimental to people because then they can feel like they're in a box and they can't get out of it. And, and I remember learning a little bit about ESP in one of my psych books and it had maybe a couple paragraphs. <laughs> and so, um, I think that it's beautiful and wonderful the work that you're doing and have done for a big part of your life. Maybe, you know, one of your, certainly your professional mission, it seems to be to help raise awareness around this. And that's exactly right, that more people need to understand that, that there is a, a great vast well within ourselves that can be tapped into. And then positive psychology has arisen as well. So there's, there's certainly movements in that direction. Um, but I think that, you know, for people to enter into mainstream healthcare, they have to have something wrong with them. They have to have something where they can be quote, diagnosed, to you know, and, and, and that can serve a purpose. But, and again, that's why I wanted to practice how I do now is to try to catch people before uh, things snowball either mentally or physically, and, and they can't quite recover the same way as they can um, before something, you know, happens. We're talking, of course, about major lifestyle changes and career paths for people. But what, what if you run into somebody and, you know, they're experiencing anxiety, they're experiencing out of sorts, uh, and they need some, some handle, some solution, uh, for the short term, something that can help them in the next, uh, half hour or in the next 24 hours? What would you tell such a person? Well, I have to be careful because I'm not a medical doctor and, you know, uh, I can give general ideas, but I think it's good for somebody if they're dealing with anxiety to get checked out by, by a, whichever doctor, maybe a naturopath or, a, you know, whomever you, you, uh, prefer working with just to rule out to make sure there isn't any other condition going on. Um, one of the things that I discovered, you know, certainly there's these mind, body, mind, body, spirit techniques, but one of the things I discovered in myself is that, 
I tend to undereat when I get stressed. And so my blood sugar was not in great shape. So I discovered that in addition to having these mind-body practices where I could connect with my breath, work with my energy, work with my thoughts and emotions, that I needed to eat regularly and keep my blood sugar good because otherwise I couldn't think clearly. My energy would definitely be off. We need food. We need water. And so I think some of those very basic things are really important. Now, I know on the flip side, some people tend to overeat or they might consume substances in large quantities or quantities enough to affect their equilibrium. And so I think that some of those basic um, aspects are important to look at. Sleep is important, but I also understand because I've dealt with insomnia in my life as well, that when you're really significantly stressed, it can affect your ability to sleep. And so I think that, um, you know, reaching out for support, I think is a really good idea and to feel like you don't have to do this on your own. I've had a lot of people guide and support me over the years, which I'm very grateful for. Um, but in a very simple, you know, aside from some of those other things I mentioned, breath is probably one of the most important, um, things we have the most control over in our lives while we're breathing and the quality of our breath. And so being able to, there's something called, um, a diaphragmatic breath, diaphragmatic breathing. It's a fancy term. It just basically means that you're taking a full abdominal breath. And so being able to let the abdomen expand out as you breathe in and then maybe holding for a second or two and then slowly exhaling. And when I've had a lot of anxiety and I've, it's hard to sit still, something that's helped me is just to go for a walk because by actually moving the body, that can also stimulate the breath to change. And, you know, we need that for our muscles to function. So, so being able to have a good quality breath in and out. Um, I think it was Dr. Andrew Weil who came up with this breathing technique. I think it's called four, seven, eight breathing, where you breathe into the count of four, hold the count of seven and exhale to the count of eight. So four, seven, eight, if that feels too long, you can half that. So two, three, four, um, if that, if that doesn't work for you, but essentially if you're really dealing with a lot of stress, being able to get the breath in a better state can help your brain function better and it can help get more oxygen and everything to your muscles and really get um, the uh, the adrenaline, the cortisol to come down and reabsorb. Emmy Vatness, this has been a wonderful conversation. I have to commend you because you're a wonderful role model for people yourself and you're providing people with long-term advice and short-term advice. Some of these breath techniques take maybe five minutes and, and they can be amazingly useful uh, for people. Uh, you are a wealth of uh, both information and inspiration, Emmy. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeff. I feel the same about you. Thank you for having me. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.